ladies and gentlemen, this is the flagship episode of the Outside Centre Film Podcast. You love it, I love it, Ben, I'm sure you love it. It's okay. film of the year time. It's yes. It's it, this is so much thinking, Theo. So uh, no, it's, much thinking. It, it's I, I I love it. it. Like learning so much more about these five wonderful films all over again. Yeah. Um, that we may have missed the first time, or merely just confirming what we said the first time around we did these films. Yeah. Um, either way, we have ourselves five candidates for film of the year 2022 for the Outside Centre Film Podcast. And Ben, of course, mm-hmm. let's not forget that's a serious award that's going on. It's a prestige. That's oh, yeah. the fun awards, though. The fun awards, like you know, best assistant makeup and stuff like that at the Oscars. You know, that, that means something to somebody at least. Well, for us, it's about prop smoking and parties. Yes. Yeah. So later on, after we've hit the major gong, we will be heading over to our top three smoking moments of the year in film mm-hmm. covered on this podcast. Um, we'll, we'll go, again, before we get into that, we'll explain why we do these things. <laughs> Just in case anybody... <laughs> can do anything. Yeah, indeed. I mean, why we need to justify that exactly. But we'd also do props, of course. Props. What is a prop? Well, we'll get into all that as well. And new for this year, don't know whether it'll be back, Ben. Simply because I wanted to do it because of the COVID thing and I wanted to see parties in films again. So now that we're all opened up, I'm not sure we need to do another party scene of the year next year. Since parties are more normal next year. But for this year only, most probably only this year, we've also done, and we've kept this secret from each other. Yes. Unlike everything else on this list, pretty much. Um, We've done a party scene of the year in film covered on this podcast. Uh, so we'll see if we've got agreement on that because we haven't told each other what that one is yet. No, uh, nor have we told about smoking and props. So, hey, loads of surprises on the way and we don't know what the film of the year is yet. So oh. we've got a lot to get through, Ben, and I suggest we crack on with it, really. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Uh, we won't introduce films. We'll just go into them per review. We're going to start oh. off with then, and this is going back. This is going back. So far, I could barely remember this one. How about that then? then? So January 2022... Wow. This was in our episode entitled "What the, Basically What the Academy Had Left Behind. Mm. Uh, and we'll be doing that uh, literally this time in 2023, a month from now. We'll be doing four films or five films that the Academy have neglected to put forward to at least the semi-final stage of the foreign language Oscar process. One of those films for the 2022 Oscars, Ben, mm-hmm. was Europa from Iraq. What else can you tell us about it as our candidate number one for film of the year 2022? Yeah, so Europa is the feature debut from Haider Rashid yep. and stars, um, amongst many other actors, a central actor called Adam Ali. And IMDb, summary of the film, Kamal has fled Iraq to try to enter fortress Europe. At the Turkish-Bulgarian border, local mercenaries are ruthlessly hunting down migrants. Alone in the forest, Kamal has three days to escape. Which... That sets everything up. Um, that's wicked more information than you have when you're actually watching the movie, um, which is something I'll come back to. Um, Europa is, out of the five films that we've watched, it is the most present tense film out of any of these five. So with Europa, we are with Kamal right now all the time as he is just running, running and running, running uh, through the forests. Um it is a film which I haven't changed my opinion of much. I, I love it. Um, I think it maximizes what you can do with very, very little, because essentially this is a um, a film created between Haider Rashid, the director, and Adam Ali, the star. It's, yep. it, 
it's a two-man piece, even though there's a, a lot more people involved, a lot more actors involved. It's it's something that these two have created together. Um, it takes a big idea and turns it into because the the concept of immigration and the concept of crossing borders and the concept of illegal immigrants. This is a big idea that we we talk about a lot. You see it in the news a lot. It takes that and it turns it into a lived experience story, so that there is no. There is no political drum beating in this film, if you like. It, it's simply one man running for 72 minutes. Um, it takes its time to find its feet, I will say. So I think last time we spoke about this, one of the things you said was that you you wished it was less specific. Yeah. And the only specificity you get in this film is the opening text, which kind of explains stuff. Other than that, I don't think we even find out Kamal's name, barely. Um, we, we know absolutely nothing about him, what he's running from, um, anything about his family or anything. The specificity is given by the pre-film text, which explains what this situation is and kind of puts it into context a bit. Part of me was thinking, I wish that wasn't there. Um, and we were getting more of an everyman experience. So it's not necessarily a story of one particular country or, or anything like that. Um, it takes its time to find its feet in that the relationship between Haider Rashid and Adam Ali, between the director and the camera takes a while to kind of balance out. So you start off in a very kind of recognizable area where you've got a, a large group of people trying to get across the border. Everything goes wrong. One person runs. And then you're you're with that guy who's running for the rest of the movie. And for about the uh, 10 minutes or so after that run starts, I think the film kind of like isn't quite sure how to be is my big question. Eventually, it does settle down. It becomes um, uh, it's it's the action movie of the five that we've got. It's it's person running. It's. Um, it's a, a companion piece to Jersey Skolomowski's Essential Killing. Mm-hmm. I think, if anyone remembers that movie. Um, but something that really came to me for this was, I've been reading a lot of philosophy recently. I'm sorry about this, Theo. Um, but something Somebody that, has to, Ben. Somebody has to. Gotta, someone's got to do these things. Yeah. And it, it took me back to a story that Carve Zahedi, I believe his name is, mentions in the Richard Linklater film Waking Life where he talks about how great um, books and jokes are for um, for the imagination. And he does this thing with man walks into a bar. And if, if you're telling someone a joke and you go, man walks into a bar, and then you have to do all of the imaginary work and you have to do all of the picturing. Film doesn't have this because film has to be this man and this bar and this place. And on, on the one hand, that mean that has less kind of imaginative purposes on the other hand that's great because the person who we're filming in that bar brings a lot of baggage to it so you put tom cruise in a bar and all of a sudden everyone's kind of nine steps ahead mm-hmm. the great thing about europa is that adam ali doesn't have any of that kind of tom cruise um baggage he, i'm sure he'll be thrilled to hear that <laughs> i'm really sorry to say this but <laughs> Not this kind of he's he's he could be anyone really, and that was where I was going with this film. Was I kind of wish we were in anywhere land, and we yeah. didn't that that pretext scroll so that we could 
we could be this could be any country's plight and this could be any, i know we have to film in a particular country and when they speak they have to speak languages and like there, there has to be a kind of wider context done but the great thing about europa is that this is this is such a, a lived present tense experience that so many people go through um and i just kind of i just wish it was a bit it went a bit broader with that that pompous opening to this um the other thing i want to mention about europa is not only is it exemplary in maximizing not having much but its last 15 minutes or so are Mm -hmm. just wonderful um it takes a while to kind of establish what it's going to be when we're running through the forest eventually everyone picks up speed actor and camera kind of unify eventually and this film is a, a kind of a lesson in exhaustion that there is no there isn't really a goal that it's not like a computer game we have to get to the second base or something there there is no kind of goal for kamal here he's just running there's nowhere for him to get to he's just trying to get to somewhere where people aren't killing him and it he just unravels and becomes more and more exhausted as the film goes on and the the combination of what they're doing with the film with the camera work with the performance, um, with the distance between actor and camera, in order to kind of get that exhaustion across to you is really something. Really, really lovely. Um, Didn't hit me as much as I was hoping it would. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the sort of thing we're looking for in in this episode, isn't it? Like, second time, does it hit us more or does it hit us less or does it hit us the same? Mm -hmm. Two of those things are not good. For mm-hmm. the most part, one of those things is very much good, and um, of course, if you loved it as much the first time round, Ben, then uh, that's obviously not too much of a bad thing that it maybe didn't hit you more no. the second time. No, 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 I would go along with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how, how was your second screening of this? Well, uh, having watched this film for the second time, Ben, mm-hmm. I have absolutely no idea why I voted Sisterhood for Macedonia as my film of the month in the episode. Oh, literally man. so what else can i say like what else can i say and i did it last year if people remember i did it with egyptian film feathers instead of tale of the king crab yes like yeah. why do i do these things once a year well i just get it so blatantly wrong <laughs> it's, anyway i've made up for the mistake because I, yeah. I nominated this for the list um from your film of the year nominations or for or winners i should say um and i'm absolutely bleeding delighted that i did so um mm. Europa second time round, as it would have been the first time round had I had my head screwed on properly, is a terrific little movie. Yes, like it's technically highly impressive. Yes. You've, you've mentioned the kind of the close relationship between actor, director, and camera and stuff. You're literally on Kamal's shoulder throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in his face for three quarters of it at least, yep. uh, and for the other quarter, he's sort of like on a boat next to his face. So it's like it's just. What an a what a wonderful, wonderful film. Like yeah. we are an immigrant in this film, Ben. We're an immigrant anyway, for the most part, if you want to look if you kind of open things up a bit. Yeah. We're we're an immigrant to something, either some sort of societal thing or some I don't know, some money thing or whatever. Whatever we're we're all peering in in onto something. We're all yeah. trying to run away from something and get something better. So that's the film. I think this film kind of talks about that kind of thing. But purely as a refugee thing, we are all Kamal in this movie and we are with him we are on him and we're wishing him the absolute best um, and yet not political drum beating too much either 
um, which I first time round I was relieved about, but I didn't actually realise the impact of it until the second time of watching. Because apart from that, yeah, I agree completely. I'm going to say unnecessary. It for the modern audience, the the like a bit of in your face context, I guess. And, and um, that context is how most people are going to explain this film to other people. Correct? Exactly. Um, now, for me, I agree. I completely agree with what you say. For me, I'd open, I'd open the film up in the forest immediately. Yeah. Running away from gunfire like that for me, that that it doesn't have to be an immigrant thing. It could be a tribal thing. It could be, it could be in Africa. It could be in in Bosnia. Like whatever it, it could be, literally anywhere in the world. Running yeah. away from something in a forest couldn't. Well, we didn't, we wouldn't even known it if it was a rainforest. It could have been a wood for all we knew. Then of course the river comes into it later on. But yeah, I definitely agree with you on that particular point as well. That maybe just just being ultra critical, as I think we have to be even on this episode, yeah. would have been yeah. fantastic if that wasn't in there. But um, what a journey this film is! What a journey! It's got a clear beginning, a middle, and an end, or at least a very strong end. And a beginning that just floats gently into the middle. I yep. forgot about the fact there's barely any dialogue in this film, Ben. Barely any. And then in the I'm gonna say the center of the film, you get this golden jewel of a moment, which is kind of all about dialogue, but nobody yep. understands anyone. Oh yes. Gotta talk about this scene. And of course, we we didn't say this at the beginning, but you've had all year to watch these folks. Um <laughs> so we we, we will as well. Yeah, I mean this this is literally early, the earliest possible point we could have recommended this film. So you've had all year to watch it. So if you haven't watched it, then avert you and you really want to, uh, or you're just waiting for it to appear somewhere, then you may want to avert your ears because we will do spoilers, more spoilers than usual okay. in this episode, as okay. is normal because it's the second time that we're watching it, and we want to be able to explain our points even more specifically with a gong on the line. So the car scene. Yes, it's it's basically. Kamal hitches a hike with a passerby, uh, and he's been injured. I think it was he shot or did he fall? I think I can't remember what he's just fallen. Yeah, I think he fell and injured, injured himself quite badly. Um, may have been hit by something. Not quite sure. Anyway, so he's literally bleeding from an almighty gash, and he hits upon a main road upon after random running in the, away from his uh, assailants, as it were. And he manages to hail the car down, and she opens the door to him. He gets in the car. And what transpires then, Ben, is without question the most tense moments of the entire movie. Yes, yes. Whereby there is no communication between the driver, female, and Kamal, male. There's a lot of m- mistrust. Mm-hmm. He, we, we, we think she understands maybe just basic English because he, Kamal says, hospital, hospital, I need hospital. Yes, and she she seems to drive somewhere, so she seems to understand the word hospital. Yeah. What makes his what makes his scene absolute genius though, is you just see the mistrust between the two characters build and build and build with no dialogue being spoken other than a radio bulletin. Yeah. Now, what's brilliant about this scene is that the radio bulletin isn't translated, Ben. Yeah. So there's no subtitles for it. We don't know what the radio is saying. We know that Kamal doesn't know because he won't understand the language either. Yep. So the only person that understands what the bulletin is saying is the driver of the car, the female who's picked him up, and she's already got loads of mistrust. So for all we know, that radio bulletin might be something on the lines of um, fugitives in the forest, keep mm-hmm. an eye out for them, don't let them in your car, blah, blah, blah. Or it might be something completely unrelated. Yeah. We just don't know. Just like 
them two don't know what each other's thinking at any point. Um, even when it came to Kamal reaching for some water because he's desperately thirsty because he's hardly drank anything during this massive run that he's been on, um, even him just reaching, grabbing a bottle was really like the start of this whole kind of mistrust during this car journey thing. Yeah. Um, it's about what, a good five minutes of intense mm-hmm. uncomfortableness this scene. But wow, really, really brave to do it like that and really, really effective. Yeah. Um, it's a change of pace and yet and yet it isn't um, so you're moving at a faster pace because you're in a car but the same sort of dread lingers the same sort of unknown mm. um, and at no point do you ever truly feel Kamal's going to get to the hospital he'll get to the hospital anytime soon like you just know it's going to go awry somewhere yeah. um, and yet quite how it happens is not how you expect necessarily no. um, so yeah terrific moment of the film probably up there that and the ending together the ending is just astonishing. And it's a that, beautiful, beautiful thing. One of the things, I, I wish it, the film kind of found its feet in the forest a little faster than it does because yeah. because it's it's flying after a certain point. But there's, there is this kind of awkward five, ten minutes where where Cameron actor don't feel like they're quite meshing. And that, that might be just me. It is just me. <laughs> it's just my opinion. Other people might be fine with it. But yeah, it's so good by the end that I wish the beginning was a bit better. It's quite a short film, very, but it still yeah. flies by. Like it really, really does. Like, and I wouldn't want necessarily more anything more added. No, no, no. I think it's it's perfect the way it is. So, I mean, well done, well done to all the team for that. Um, of course, it it is of course a shame that it lost out to some bigger budgeted, lengthier, yeah. more romantic, whatever you want to call it, uh, other nominations that we know. Yep, yep. made it through to the semis in the final list, but nevertheless. It's on this list for a reason. Yeah. It was your film of the month. It was my yep. second choice that month, albeit really it should have been first. So either way, it would have been on this list anyway. So bravo, Ben. And I think we can safely say we look forward to this guy's next film. Absolutely. And Ad- Adam Alley's next as well. Adam Alley's next film will keep an eye out as well, definitely. Right. Nomination number two. Lucy loses her horse, otherwise known as Lucy Perdson Cheval. <laughs> beautiful French there thank you very much and probably this was a film that I was looking forward to seeing again the most uh-huh. um, this was my film of the month that it was in and I believe it was probably your number two it was my number two for sure it was number 1.5 because you're pretty close between this and uh, you, were, you were the closest that's why you picked it for the list so right at her grandmother's house with her daughter Lucy <laughs> dreams of being an actress <laughs> That does not set me up to watch this movie. No, it doesn't. And that's where you'd get, if you if you, if you went on movie or IMDb, that's how they both described the film. Yeah. Thankfully, great. however, our main website is the wonderful Festival Scope Pro, Ben, as it will be for next year as well. And their description of this film is a lot more helpful and insightful. So yeah. forget movie and IMDb and FSP is, after a relaxing stay at her grandmother's house, with whom she lives with her daughter, she suddenly discovers herself in full medieval armour amongst rolling hills. (laughs) That is literally the film. The action then shifts to an empty theatre where Lucy, in the same suit of armour, awakes amidst the chaotic preparations for a performance of King Lear. That's what I call a description of this movie. And yet that doesn't quite get it right either. (laughs) This is a hell of a thing. It's really difficult. 
we have we, we have one of these every year, don't we? Really, um, air conditioner from Angola was the one where a few years ago where, wh- however you want to set the film up, you can't quite do it justice without having to watch it a few times. This is that film this year for me. So yeah, directed by Claude Schmitz. To be quite frank, Ben, having seen this film twice now, I'm still not entirely sure what this film's actually about. <laughs> it could be about a hundred things, maybe yeah. just a couple of things. One of the things this film is definitely in uh, in relation to, Ben, is mm-hmm. lockdown. Yeah. This your film, for me, it's all about actors, actresses, stagehands, directors, all getting back into the swing of filming and performing, as well as building relationships on and off screen post-COVID, which is something we all had to get used to as well. Mm-hmm. So it's life post-COVID and also performing and acting and directing and stagehanding and whatever else after COVID. That's my actual favourite thing about this movie, Ben. Along with one other performance in particular, and that is, I've mentioned the stagehand already, my character of the year, the truly delightful, scene-stealing Francis. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Motorhead gear-wearing. He's the (laughs) life and soul of Lucy Perdson Cheval. Like, I've just got so much respect and time for that guy and his performance in this film. It is just, he's hilarious, basically. He is fantastic. And and f- again, for me, favourite character of the year across all films, all on this list. I, um, I, was hang- I was hanging off every word in action that he did in this film. Yeah. Everybody else seems to be conforming to some sort of stereotypal caricature. Mm-hmm. But he, for me, is the only genuine character that doesn't feel out of place in this film whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um so, funnily enough, though, Ben, that's not something I'd aim at one character in particular, second time round. First time round, I had no qualms with a particular character in this movie. Second time round, Ben, I've got a huge amount of problem, and this is a problem for the film, for me, uh-huh. with Lucy in this film, second time what? round. Yeah. I really struggled mm-hmm. first, second time round, second time round, with Lucy, there's a bit of monologuing that jars a bit for me. It kind of sticks out. It doesn't really fit with the rest of the piece. Which bit? There's a, there's a lot of looking for her daughter. Yes. There's a lot of looking for her horse. Yes. In the theatre setting. Yes. And it all just feels like a bit odd. And that's considering the fact that the film starts off very oddly. It yes. does start off with Lucy and two other actresses in the countryside, wearing armour with horses. And they lose those horses. And mm. it makes perfect sense. So then you have a nap and you wake up in a different place, a different world. Absolutely no problem with that. It's the yeah. post-lockdown world. So where is your daughter? Where is your horse? So I have tried to make the connection between the two realms in this film. Mm-hmm. But I, don't, I just don't get what she was expecting to see her daughter and her horse in the theatre. I Yes, understood. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just a little bit odd, really. What yeah. I also found jarring second time round, Ben, is first time round, I was just blown away with all the context, all the lines, Francis and everything. Um, does this film actually love the theatre or not, Ben? No, I, I don't. <sighs> there, it's really difficult to answer. Now, it, it, for me, it's kind of important whether I do get that answer or not. Because yeah. for me, as a commentary on the art form itself, I think Mm -hmm. this film wants to have a commentary on the art form of theatre. But Mm -hmm. it just flitters between love and hate far too much for it to be the case. Mm -hmm. Um, If it was a little bit more of the love or a little bit more of the hate, I'd I'd, I'd have more of a grasp about what Claude Schmidt actually feels, how he actually feels about theatre. He Mm -hmm. does have a theatre background. Mm 
We must stress that. So I'd like to think that he is having a commentary on the theatre art form here in this movie via all these characters that are all caricatures and all the rest of it. I get all that. Yeah. But it does look, at, for example, the ridiculousness of theatre, right? Yeah. You've got the yeah. smoking plant scene. Yep, yes. You've got the bang, but you've got the banquet prop scene, trying to find the right props for the banquet and yep. throwing plates around. Where you've also got the director saying theatre is shit, and he only doesn't say it once, Ben. He says it multiple times. Yes, which I feel like they're doing. Whenever I watch a French film, I feel like everything's a reference to something that I don't know about. <laughs> yes, I feel like that's a reference to something that I don't know about. Yeah. yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. That's a very funny scene, and of course, it involves Francis. But you know, so you got those kind of things where it's very deliberately against hating theatre, right? The, the the unnecessary nuance of it, the stupidity of like smoking props and things, all of that. But then he got lots of affection for theatre then. Mm-hmm. Um, characters monologue in this movie, not just Lucy, a few of them have little monologues in this in this film that, that you can tell that they enjoy doing them. And then yeah. you get Francis again, who talks passionately about his mother who loved Carmen. Yes. And, right. and, and also his own knowledge of Shakespeare. So again, mm-hmm. there's a stagehand. He loves theatre. It's his, it's his life. It's his family's life. Yeah. Um, so you've got loads of positives there as well. So, yeah, I can't quite work out what this film's trying to tell me, whether it does love or does, or whether it is truly a love-hate thing. I prefer something a bit more decisive on that. My overall point I want to finish for now is this film does deserve to be on this list because there's yeah. nothing quite like it, be it 2022, 2021, apart from the link to air conditioner in the fact that you can't really describe air conditioner from Angola and have it justify the film. My only other connection to any other film I've ever seen on this podcast in recent times is that I've not seen anything else, Lucy Loses Her Horse, or similar to it. It's just a very, very hell of a mess. (laughs) It's also a very, very hell of a thing, all at once. And uh, maybe one day, Ben, when I watch it for the third time, I'll actually get to the bottom of it. Yes, yes. I think you're right to have all these questions. Because I I sat down and I was watching it, but... uh, First of all, some of the kind of general positives. It's it's a film of two halves. It's a film of the the scene with the knights in the beginning, and then it's a film of the theatre section. But then as I was watching it, I was thinking it's kind of a film of three halves, uh, three thirds, three thirds, the three halves. Um, <laughs> there's not just the night stuff and the theatre stuff. There's also the stuff with her mum with Lucy's yeah. mum and with her daughter, which kind of like makes up a whole other chunk of the film, which I think, I might be wrong, is deeply related to what this film is about. Um, the uh, the section where she is a knight in the beginning, um, that landscape, that light, it's just, it's just wonderful. It looks so good. And then when you get into the theatre, um, you lose that landscape and you lose that light and hey-ho, them's the breaks. We're in a different place now. <laughs> but... Um, when she, the film is called Lucy Loses Her Horse. And when she loses her horse, I, I get a bit surprised by it. And I, this happened again when I was rewatching it. <laughs> like when I watched the movie Three Headed Shark Attack. And when the shark finally came out of the water, I was like, oh my God, it's got three heads. Like it's the name of the movie, Ben. Why, why? Are you- <laughs> I was surprised when she lost her horse again. And so I was sitting there thinking, what? does the horse represent why has she lost her horse why have they all lost her their horses all the actresses have lost their horses why are we having these shots of her chatting to her mum about acting why do we have all this footage of her daughter um just doing stuff and the film opens with a child playing in a river 
That's sort of a home video as well, isn't it? It's, well, it's it's shot on film. It's it's yeah. we're, we're four by three. It's it's I'm presuming this is sixteen millimeter, um, but it, it has that kind of home movie feel to it because it's just a kid playing. Because yeah. where is the artifice in a child playing? And the, and this is a film about performance. This is whole thing is about performance, and it feels like Lucy losing her horse is the motivation behind her performance. She's trying to regain her motivation for acting, her motivation for this part she wants to achieve. And then the film closes, this isn't particularly a spoiler, but it closes with, again, more footage of her daughter playing. And again, where is the artifice in this child playing? Because this child is not, this isn't, we've talked on this podcast before about actor children. I'm doing a, I'm doing Air Bunnies, about kids who are stage school and they're trained and they're hothoused and they, they just don't feel like children anymore. They feel like tiny little adults. I really, really like working with Johnny. <laughs> exactly, that kind of thing. But Lucy's daughter is not that at all. Lucy's daughter is an absolute child um, lost in her own world, completely unaware for most of it that there's a camera watching her. And I think that that sense of complete lack of artifice is part of what Lucy is trying to regain in this film. So right at the end, the the, the end of a film, we call it the donument often, mm-hmm. which, which is a, a word from French, which means... Um, it means unraveling string. So like it's a ball of string, which is finally unraveling and you're seeing where everything is. And at, at the end of this film, in the Donnement, Lucy is sat there saying string unraveling, string unraveling, string unraveling over and over and over again. She's saying like Donnement, Donnement, Donnement. And her her answer to this is to identify the artifice around her. So she picks up one of the, the sets for the, the feast and she says, this is not a chicken. Um, it's plastic and that's when she refines her horse again by kind of by identifying the artifice of what she's doing she refines her motivation a little bit perhaps that is one possible reading for this thing although she she sits there and she says string unraveling string unraveling string unraveling and then she goes I've got it she picks up the chicken she goes that's not chicken it's plastic and then boom she has her horse back boom she's with her mum boom there's applause and she's with her daughter so maybe that's not necessarily the answer here, but I feel that a lot of this is about that kind of what what does a performer, what is the motivation of a performer within their film um, and within their career and within their life? Because one of the things that I should have recognized about Lucy Loses Her Horse and I didn't, and I should have made it Film of the Month and I didn't, is that this is a film about performance and filmmaking and artifice and and being and being truthful, being authentic. Um, to something and a love of that creative process which is I'm all about this kind of thing and I don't know why I didn't rate this one higher when we first saw it because I I just adore those things it's a tricky film it is not a film for everyone it is it is your racist uncle's stereotypical idea of a French art house movie yes this is all true but um there's a lot going on here um it's a good some the first half the second third is gorgeous all that stuff in the in the countryside it, it just took me straight back to the Taylor King Crab all that stuff in yep. the theater it's a whole it's a whole different film Francis is an absolute standout um it's a I guess it's like a film of bits maybe it's a film of like yep. sketches 
Yep. Um, but somehow those sketches are all sewn together really nicely. Um, it's gorgeous. It looks great. I really, I, I was really focused on Lucy. So Lucy didn't let me down at all. Um, I really like this film. I like, I, I liked it a lot more second time than I did first time as well. Interesting. So yeah. I mean, who is Claude Schmitz? Claude, drop us yeah. a line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you Francis? Are you Lucy? Are yeah. you the director in this film? Or yeah. are you actually a bit of everybody? Which, which is the easiest answer. It's probably the most accurate one as well. Yeah. But um, Ben, I, I just can't help but feel if this film was called Francis Loses His Lobster. Or, or Francis Loses His Vape. Yeah. <laughs> if it's called Francis Loses His Lobster Plate, I would have automatic shoehorned in film of the year, hands down. As it's Lucy Loses Her Horse, it is merely a contender. It just yeah, it, Francis meant that much to me, and as I say, it's, it's a performance of performance of the year by far, character of the year by far. Yeah, um, yeah I'm looking forward to Claude Schmidt's next film, which okay. uh, I believe I've been informed is coming out in 2023, but uh, or at least he started filming at the back end of this year. Oh, very exciting. So, uh, hopefully, we're getting on the podcast next year, if not the year after. So yeah, deserves to be on this list. A hell of a weird, unusual concoction of things. Lucy mm-hmm. loses the horse. Ben, moving on to something a bit more sedate, perhaps. Hmm. Nomination number three, our most recent entry, but for posterity's sake and for time's sake, we shall still give it the full review, even though we only reviewed it in November 2022. This was a joint film of the month when it Hmm. came out in our Scandinavian Hmm. special. Tell us all about, once again, compartment number six. So compartment number six is the, I want to say sixth or seventh, um, feature film from Finnish filmmaker Juho Kostmanen. Um, sorry for brutalizing your name there. IMDb, <laughs> IMDb summary is, as a train weaves its way up to the Arctic Circle, two strangers share a journey that will change their perspective on life, which is, yeah, sure, right, fine. That, that, that is the film. So it's a film about Laura, our Finnish central character, who is in a relationship with Irina, a lady who lives in Moscow. They were going to go on a trip together to go see the petroglyphs up in part of russia where the name of which i can't remember was it mamansk mamansk yes it is they were going to go to mamansk to see the petroglyphs but arena can't make it now so laura's gone on her own and she's sharing a compartment with a russian gentleman called Lyoha. a gentleman (laughs) actually for a russian he probably is a gentleman isn't he really yeah he he is very sullen and quiet when she first (laughs) meets him and then he starts drinking. Oh, he's a nightmare. He's he's got his own special little drinking cup, which I didn't know <laughs> the first time we watch it. It's a kind of like a concertina thing for yeah. drinking. Um, she goes off, she comes back, he is langered, he starts talking to her, and you're like, Oh, well, this is just a nightmare. She's sharing this compartment with a good this this guy's an awful guy. And then slowly they start to learn more about each other as this film goes on and takes us to interesting places. It's nothing new, this film. You've seen it like a million times. It's like a Hallmark Christmas movie shot on handheld 16mm cameras on the Trans-Siberian Express, if you like. And yet something about this film really, really works for me. Um, It is by far the film that I made the most notes on when I was doing my second watch, which I thought was kind of interesting. I agree. Oh, really? Okay, Me right. Too. So, so first of all, we start, we, we start in Moscow at a party 
being held by Irina with all of her Moscovite friends around. And pretty much the opening line of dialogue in this film, and I haven't written it down verbatim, so... I I have. (laughs) Good. Theo, what is the opening line, please? I knew this would come up, you see. How funny is that? Right. To escape, you need to firmly know not where you are running, but from where. Thank you very much. What... (laughs) are we escaping from is my my yeah. Yeah, version of that layman's terms version yeah. <laughs> so like the film opens with this question of what are we escaping from and then we're presented with this party and so many little things happen at the party that i didn't notice before so f- for me laura is exactly the same as every other person at this party for the people at the party she obviously isn't she's saying things in a funny way she doesn't get certain reference points that everyone else is getting there's the name of a writer comes up called like Ak- Akmatsavan or something and she says it the wrong way and they correct her and suddenly watching this this the second time how very out of place she is in this party comes through to me which it totally didn't come through to me the first time at all I thought she was just an, another Russian person at this Russian party even though I knew she was Finnish um so what is Laura escaping from on this journey and where is she going? And um, a good, okay, so she, so originally we think she's going to see the petroglyphs in Murmansk. And then yep. that, that has another question for me. So do you understand a thing by looking at a thing? Because in Moscow with Arena, she's living in this very kind of academic world of academia where you you have to you read about something, you understand something, and then you can kind of process it. And so she's she's kind of on that journey. She's 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 learned about the petroglyphs, she's fascinated by them, she wants to go to Murmansk and see them. And on this journey, on this train that she goes on, she's kind of introduced to a different way of life with Lioha, which is not about understanding a thing, but a bit, this is going to sound cheesy, but it's about living life, mm-hmm. about doing things. So you get your kind of Hallmark movie where these two, like first they hate each other, then they love each other as they go along. When you finally get to Mamansk, and when you finally get to the petroglyphs, and I, I want to... to underline something here how long are laura and lioha together for at the end of the movie not much at all actually no no it is less than 20 minutes when she gets to mamansk and when they have the whole the, that whole final chunk of the movie it's less than 20 minutes but it feels so much longer so that they finally get to mamansk after this hella long journey and they finally get to the petroglyphs you're never shown the petroglyphs and um so i had to like after this movie i had to go and look up what the hell the petroglyphs are to kind of understand what's going mm-hmm. on so you can go and see the petroglyphs but what is it to have a snowball fight with lioha in a blizzard that's a far more kind of a live experience yep. in this film than going and watching the petroglyphs and final moment i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm i'm sorry but i'm gonna go into schmaltz for the final moment of this film because this is this is kind of like what this film is to me what is it to be in a car to listen to music to be in the sunshine and to know that you are loved that's the that's the end of this movie and it it hits you really hard and it it hits you because Saidi Hala the central actor in this is just doing so much with so little so much of this film is not spoken about 
like all the other films that we've got today people talk about what the concepts are but compartment number six it, it feels like the central characters are perversely not talking about what this film is about in a way they're they're living what this film is about um yeah really hit me i've got more to say but i'm gonna but what how was your second screening of this yeah i mean along the same lines i was totally shocked how much my enjoyment increased even um it stayed at the same level but then i thought actually i'm picking up so much more stuff here this is this is quite considering that we went we'd watched it we watched this as time of recording literally a month ago yeah um, I thought it'd be fresher in my mind and or I thought I knew how it all went from beginning to end. Hell no. And it's not yeah. even that long a film, one hour 50. No, no. It, I mean, but I'm going to the length in a bit anyway, but wow, there was no drop off for me in the quality whatsoever second time around. Mm. So much more picked up. And, and chiefly, again, the delightful, delightful hand, the delightful mastercraft of Finland's second best, second best currently <laughs> active filmmaker. <laughs> Yuho Kuzmanen, and guess who's doing a film next year? Aki Kurosaki. Aki Kurosaki. So there's number one. But this guy has kept me going until I was hoping Aki would do at least one more film because he keeps retiring all the time. So we've got him to look forward to next year, hopefully. But this guy can always bridge the gap going forward because he knows how to put a movie together. Whether you've seen it all before, whether you've never seen it before, it just remains a wonderfully fresh, exciting moving experience watching a Yuho Kuzmanen film. So basically for me, more nuance this time around. Mm. Uh, most notably, Ben, and this is I don't think either of us talked about this in the last time we, we did this, oh. the lighting. Yes, 100%. There's a moment when, I mean, I could mention all sorts of different lighting scenes, but one that sticks out for me is a scene when the two lovebirds, were at, mm-hmm. that, were at that stage, they go back to the compartment after... Um, one of their visits to the the food cart, the the restaurant cart. Is that what you call it, yeah. restaurant cart? I guess so, yeah. Um, I guess so, yeah. Um, anyway, there's a warm glow in the carriage's lighting. And that's yeah. because that's because they're truly in love at that point. Like, And yeah. it, it sounds like a really obvious thing, but it hasn't happened at any point in this movie. Yeah. You can't actually dim the lights in these carriages, right? You can't. <laughs> like, there's no option. You either have them on or you have them off. This film made the effort just to change the lighting for that one scene. And it's only ever one scene. Mm-hmm. They're in love after that scene, and you never see the lights like that. They're not in love before that scene as such, yeah. so you don't see the lights change. They made yeah. the effort to change the lighting on that one scene to prove to you that these two were now into each other. Yeah. Like, just a touch of absolute quality. If they'd yeah. overdone that and made everything furry, not furry, um, blurry, yeah. and, and everything all warm all of a sudden, no. It went straight back to being cold rushage of train journey. Yeah, so, there, but that, there, are some, there are some delightful little technical moments in this, which yeah. you, to, you kind of miss the first time. There's so much of this film is about the the world opening itself up to Laura. Laura going out into the world and seeing more of it. She's kind of ensconced in this tiny little apartment in Moscow, um, stuck with Arena, kind of like living that life. Yeah, and there's a bit early on when she first when Arena and her are in bed. And she gets up and Arena apologizes for not going on this trip with her. And Laura kind of, she she's, I think she's wrapped in a blanket. She doesn't walk out to the balcony. And when she walks out to the balcony, obviously we can't hear the traffic and stuff. We can't hear the outside world until she opens the balcony door. And then you get this flood of sound of, of the outside world. And then she steps outside onto the balcony and she closes the door behind her, but the camera stays inside the apartment. 
um and this is like a this it's a kind of a a really elemental filmmaking question about where where is your sound coming from if you're if you're filming in an apartment and you've your your sound is normally where the camera is so to have her step into a different world of sound from the camera is a this might be a bit too abstract the way i'm explaining it but it but it's it's simple, but it's inc- incredibly effective, which is what this film is. Absolutely, yes. I mean, there's there's a scene as well when she had to ring up Irina on the phone, and sometimes yeah. she had to, sometimes she didn't. She yes. always tended to make those phone calls when it was dark. I don't mean yeah. at night. I mean like other lights around yeah. were always dark. And there was yeah. a moment when um, they have a falling out over drawing a picture of each other. Oh God, yeah, Laura and. Um, in the, the, in the carriage, yeah, and, and uh, but what happens when she storms back to the carriage? All the lights are off in the carriage. That's yeah. never happened in the film. Yeah, the train stopped at stations for forty-five minutes, and the lights have always been left on in the corridors of the carriages. Right? Yeah. Not when they're falling out, the lights yeah. go off. Like stuff like this. Again, this is what lighting nuance. That ha- I mean, you're the lighting person, but even I'm now becoming a lighting geek. Glad because- to share that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sunlight at the very end of the film, where she's in in the cab, being yeah. driven away. That that sunlight is not a new horizons and all the rest of it. Just like honest yeah. to god, wow. So basically, I mean, we, again, we both got more to say, but everyone, mm. just just watch the damn film. We've already recommended it once. We're recommending it twice. Yeah. Uh, it's available to rent on YouTube and other platforms. It's it's well well worth one hour forty five, one hour fifty. The okay. fact that the fact that. And this this is again the the craft and the mastership craft of Yuho Guzman. And how on earth does he make a three hour film into one hour fifty, and yeah. yet makes it feel like the best kind of three hour film? Mm. You have been on a long journey with a few twists. God knows how many changes of trains. You've even had time to get off the train for about fifteen minutes and spend time in a little shack somewhere with with the. <laughs> It was comedy that you need. And there's a little bit of comedy throughout this film, but that particular stuff as well was a welcome break from the train. We all needed a break from the train. I don't know about you, Ben, but if we we were on that train for literally one hour 50, I don't know. You need to get off and have a a chat with an old Russian woman. And and a bit of casual racism thrown in for good measure. Like just, just great. Um, It really is an excellent train movie. It's a really excellent romantic drama. You, you might want to call it romantic comedy, but if I say that, it might bring around the, the wrong kind of audience. So it's a romantic drama more than anything. Yeah. Um, but for everybody else, just, get, just buy a ticket and get the hell on the train. Hell yeah. Basically. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's just a hell of a thing. And my final, yeah. final point I want to say is, so yeah, yeah I'll, I'll repeat the line that it starts with, to escape, you need to firmly know, not where you are running, but from where. The film ends with, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sorry, but that's you can't get any better than that. Yeah, you literally, so it's the film is literally her being an intellectual, yeah. and at the end, it's not her that says it; it's her Russian gentleman. But the yeah. film, in, in general, ends with "fuck you." Yeah. So you've you've ran away as far as you can from this intellectualism, art, or, you know, this this world left behind, and you've just gone, "What you know what." Fuck you, <laughs> and it's aimed at very a very particular person. But you can just imagine Laura reading that and thinking of Arena, saying, "Fuck you, Arena. I've yeah. I've been to the petroglyphs. I don't need books. Ooh. I've been on a tour by myself. I've come all this way without you. You never answered the phone in the end. I found okay. someone who I quite like, but I can live without him as well. 
The sun's in the horizon. The sun's in my face in the back of this car. One of my favorite tunes is on the radio. Fuck yeah. you. Yeah. Like, it's just fantastic. What a way to end any movie, never mind this one. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Right. Ben. Yes. Nomination number four. Plan 75. Japanese film directed by Chia Hayakawa-san. Where government program Plan 75 has been passed into law, which encourages senior citizens to be euthanized to remedy a rapidly aging Japanese society. The film principally follows an elderly woman named Michi, whose means of survival are vanishing. We've also got a pragmatic Plan 75 salesman. And we've also got a Filipino nurse. All three face choices of life and death. First thing to say, Ben, mm-hmm. this did not make it to the semi-final stage of the 2023 Foreign Language Oscars semi-final stage. That's surprising. Which, whilst being criminal, mm-hmm. <laughs> is mm. not entirely unexpected, is it? Let's be honest. Drive my car. Drive my car. Who can forget the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful drive my car? I sure can. I mean, yeah. Uh, indeed. It won the Foreign Language Oscar, did it not? So, unfortunately, I mean, you can understand why they've done this. Because, Ben, Ben, mm. why mm. would you judge a film based on its own merit and not on its passport and not on recent history? Why would you do that for? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm not going to pretend to understand anything. Anymore. No. So, look, basically, one of the things I'm going to come out of this is this film is better than Drive My Car that won the Oscar. So, that's the main point I want to make, really. Anyway. So instead, if the if the academy are going to ignore it again, then uh, me and you will just say nice things about it. So mm. quality product, basically everything about it. Yes. Nobody puts the foot wrong. It's a sincere film. The subject matter is explored from every angle possible, mm-hmm. uh, but also from, from some angles where you don't expect really, um, including and I've, and I did forget about this scene second time round. So I'm glad I'm glad I watched it again. Yeah. Uh, wonderfully sweet scenes involving the Plan 75 call centre girl. Oh, God, yeah. Oh who God. becomes friends with Michi. So I've, I mentioned the three the three stooges at the top, which is what the film really focuses on. But ultimately, there is a fourth spoke to the wheel. Mm-hmm. And it is the Plan 75 salesperson who, whose job it is, is to provide emotional support. Yeah. And to ensure, basically, as the film tells them, make sure that they don't change their minds that these 75-year-olds and, and, and around that era have all agreed to be euthanized and that they don't change their mind last second because of, you know, human, as the film says, human worries and concerns and stuff like that. So, yeah, the film doesn't leave you in any doubt. Uh, what I like about this film, is, as I said, it's a sincere film. The film constantly never makes you forget about Plan 75. It's everywhere. Why it's been implemented. It's all well and good it being there because we're watching a film where it's called Plan 75, but we need to know constantly, even if we need reminding as an audience, why has the Japanese society decided to pass this as law? And the film does a really fantastic job of reminding us constantly about that. It talks about the economic reasons. It talks Mm -hmm. about the social reasons, including a fantastic scene right at the beginning, Ben, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Oh, yeah. uh, blurry in all sorts, but um, yeah. which is quite different to anything else in the film, which is an interesting thing. But so from quite early on, basically in this movie, we are all active Japanese citizens. Mm. We're watching people come to terms with the decision of loved ones that they take to either go with Plan Seventy Five or don't go with Plan Seventy Five. Mm. We also come to terms with the government's decision why they're doing it, what are the reasons, and the 
and the fact that it even might lower the age to 65 for some things. The mm. film asks you to take a side. There is no doubt about that. Could you live with yourself if your elderly person said yes or no? Could you live with yourself having voted with or against this law? Mm. It's a, The film asks you to explore your own conscience, just like all the characters in this film are asked to explore their own conscience. You've got Mitchie. She's wrestling with the fact that she is healthy enough to work, but society has basically cast her aside. So, does she sign up to Plan 75? What has she got to live for? She can't work. Her flat's about to be demolished. Does she agree? Does she think it's the right thing to do for herself or for society for her to agree to Plan 75? You've got the salesman, Hiromi. He's perfectly fine going about his business until a family member that he knows, his uncle, I believe? Yes, um, his uncle, yeah. His uncle signs up to Plan 75 and it rocks his world and his belief in his work. So he is now examining what Plan 75 means for him and for his uncle. Then the Filipino nurse, and she's got even more going on. She's yeah. perfectly happy to care for the elderly. Then she needs to raise some money quick snap because of her child back home and her heart operation she needs. Yeah. So to what extent will she go along with a new job at Plan 75 where the money is better and everything it entails? And to what extent will she go against her Christian faith then? Yeah. Because she's asked to do some very unchristian things in this movie. Um, so again, she's wrestling with that as well. So the film asks all those questions. It answers nearly all of those questions. And more yeah. besides, 1 hour 50 again. Really excellent length, maximum length. Won't want anything taken out of it. Mm-hmm. It's not a short film, but again, it absolutely flies by. Uh, there's more to be said, Ben, but for me, this is without doubt one of the best Japanese films we've had for a while on this thing. Yeah. Um, and what a film. Yes. I think out, out of like not, not only a lot of the films we've seen this year, but these five films, this is the, the, the big film. Yeah. Out of the five films, this is the, the, the one that is most like a, a great big very well made movie um that a lot of people may have seen before it's it's a hell of a thing um and it talks about something very big by looking at very small details so it kind of so what we've got here is a societal question um old people are living too long are a drain on society the situation in japan has become extreme to say the least and so we have introduced this plan where those who are 75 years old or older may uh, choose to have their lives ended. And we understand this big societal issue by watching a handful of individuals in public and in private and how they kind of res- respond to this situation. And, and that's kind of how we understand it. It asks this amazing question about what works for a society and what works for an individual. Because when you're talking about 80 million people, I don't know how many people live in Japan, when you're you're talking about 80 million people, um, it's kind of easy to start making sweeping statements about what's right and what's wrong. When you sit and you watch an old lady clip her fingernails and put the clippings into potted plants, um, you may have different feelings. And it it kind of, it, it does this amazing, amazing job of turning an entire country's problems into the private unraveling lives of this this handful of people it's really 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 well made um it hits you hard i completely agree 
on the the the, the phone lady um, being the the fourth spoke or the fifth spoke. Her her kind of her emotional awakening to the plight of this old woman that she's been on the phone to is just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I think that's where a lot of the kind of emotional strength of this film comes. Um, it, it, the filmmaking is, it's just so good. It's, it's, yeah. it's so balanced. It's got that kind of classic, I'm not going to say Ozu, but it's got that kind of Ozu like sense of balance in filmmaking. And something I didn't really notice the first time I watched it is how the, the, the Donumont of this film, the final 15 minutes or so where everything goes all, all tense and crazy, everything kind of jumps into handheld. Which the the rest of the film just kind of, kind of abandons. Everything mm-hmm. is nice and nice and static. Perfectly set up, perfectly placed, lighting, props, everything. Yeah, every everything is on point. And there's all these kind of little moments that I didn't notice the first time how much they relate to what's going on. So I, I think we mentioned this the first time we watch it. There's a bit where they're at the Plan Seventy Five office and everyone's sitting around filling in forms, and there's a TV on in the background. Yeah, yeah. and the TV is obviously kind of annoying everybody but no one's doing anything about it. And then a man of strength gets to his feet and walks over and turns the TV off. And there's such kind of like aggression and shock and surprise in, in his decision to end that TV. Yeah. Like the, 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 the parallels to what's going on in that room and what they're doing by quietly filling out all these bits of paper, the kind of the, the gentle administrative horror of what's going on about making decision is is perfectly echoed in this man just getting up and turning off a tv and the standout moment for me which i don't how did i miss it you may have spotted this actually you may have mentioned it first time is at the end um you've got the the guys driving his uncle um in the car he's fleeing he's he's doing, he's um he's doing a runner and he's stopped by the police that's the salesman by the way so, yeah, okay. Harami decided, and again, we've wondered about spoilers, so do avert if you wish, but he's, um, he's taking his now dead uncle to be cremated because oh. he doesn't want to have Plan 75 do anything to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, so he's got, the, he's got the dead body in the car, he's got a policeman talking to him in the window, and he's just staring ahead and he's watching snowflakes fall on the windscreen of the car being swept away by the windscreen wipers. He's just well, all of these unique snowflake after unique snowflake falling on the windscreen and just being silently swept away into non-existence over and over and over again. Little moments like this, these yeah. tiny, tiny, small details, which echo the much, much larger ramifications on the wider society. I, I didn't spot. It's yeah, it's it's really pitch perfect, big, big, big movie stuff. And it, it's it's very, very, very good. She's 46, so she's not the oldest, not the youngest, um, yeah. but she, she knows how to put a film together. Yeah. And yeah. I think we look forward to her next one. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. This, this was really, really something. I'm it very excited for people to start seeing this and talking no, about it. Yeah, and, which is why it's a massive, massive shame that it didn't, it didn't reach a semi-final stage. But hey, you've got us, so we, we, mm-hmm. we, we know what we're on about. So, right. Here we go then, Ben. January. The fifth and final, as we head towards January 2023, somewhat yeah. apt, therefore, that we have a film called January. Mm-hmm. IMDb, sorry, <clears throat> water. IMDb summary. Two men and a bird trapped in a snow <laughs> in the middle of nowhere tried to solve a mystery 
while it slowly devours them. That is not the film that I... There is two men. Well, there's more than two men. And there is a bird. But that oversimplifies this movie. (laughs) They they really, really are. So (laughs) January, Petr Tomorov is missing. Petr Tomorov. Petr Tomorov has left. He took the horse. He took the rifle. He took the carriage. Um... We're in a a Petatomorov store in the middle of nowhere, in the forest. It's January. What a winter. Petatomorov is missing. And person after person after person keeps coming to this place, asking where the hell Petatomorov is, having a very long monologue or conversation, then going out into the woods to find him, then coming back as a stuffed fox. Yeah, I want to say Fox. Yeah, okay. Correct. And uh, all the while, we've got our, our two central characters who who are never named. Um, they're just the the guy running the shop and this old guy sitting down with a crow, and they're just eating walnuts, having drinks, kicking back. Petr Tomorov will be back soon. Petr Tomorov will be back momentarily. <laughs> and that and that is this film. Um, this is where so when so when I was talking about Plan 75, Plan 75 is a great big film turned into the small by looking at the, the private lives of these people. January is a is a it's a if you like it's a it's a joke or a Twilight Zone episode or a, it's it's a very very simple central concept or an Man, inside number nine episode or an, or an inside number nine episode. It's a very small thing. But it's made very big by this film. Um, even an interesting thing that hit me while watching January for the second time is that when you have a close up in a film, you're looking at a small detail. So you're you're kind of leaning in close and looking at what something looks like in detail. But in January, when they have a close up of something, that small thing becomes very big. Mm-hmm. So when you've got this machine which just cracks walnuts. Um, it fills the screen and it becomes some some kind of like 2001 Space Odyssey giant kind of spaceship thing. January is the small made big. If I'm going to say Plan 75 is the big made small, January is the small made big. Um, it's a big film with a very, very tiny center. It knows exactly what it wants to do and it does it very well. Um, it's a very male film. It is presented in black and white. Um, there are no women in the film at all. It's just a film about dudes talking about dude stuff. Um, it's very, very good. Uh, it's a film about performances a lot because how how these how, so we've got these two old men. They're in the shop. Every now and then the power goes out. They have to turn it back on again. People keep turning up asking for Petr Tomarov. Petr Tomorov will be back soon. He left with the horse and the rifle and the carriage, and he will be back soon. Not another missing horse, Ben. No, and, the, and, and, the, <laughs> and that is the film. It's kind of like yeah. it's a Beckett play or something. Um, it's played for laughs at time. It's played for horror at other times. And something which I don't know if we mentioned last time, but I feel like we need to mention is the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. Because the guys, the Andrei Paunov, who made January, he has seen The Shining. Um, and he, he's bringing a lot of that shining energy back in January, particularly in the last 20 minutes, when the film turns into rip-roaring colour. 
yep. uh, and become something quite different. We get a kind of a, a Lloyd-esque barman um, and we have a slightly different moments, different scenes. Petr Tomarov is still at the very heart of it. Uh, you've also got this concept of, is it called a tempst? There's this kind of like mythical... Tenets, yes, tenets. You've got this kind of mythical fairy tale monster in the woods, which they discuss, and then they discuss the concept of, what is it, when you, oh, I can't remember what it is now, when you meet a tenets, you, oh, whatever. Which may or may not be Romanian. Which may or may not be Romanian, yes. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of Romanian hate. And Moldova hate, and uh, what else is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then this, everything might be the dream of a dog. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> it's, it's the Twilight Zone episode. It's, it's a, it's a three-line joke turned into something very big, which is very good. Um, and very well made with some some great standout performances. Um, amazing props, amazing performance from the crow. January, I think like Europa, it didn't quite knock it out of the park for me on the second screening, but I still love it, and I still think people should watch it, and I think it's very good. Yeah, I mean, for, I think people remember that I was always sceptical about this film being on this list. Um, it was the best of a very, very, very bad bunch, really. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for me, nothing's has changed. So I'm going to be straight up and honest about it. This is not in contention for film of the year for me. No, no, me neither. No. So no. The, the other four, absolutely. This one, no. Yeah. Um, and I stand by all the criticisms I made previously of this film. Mm-hmm. Whilst appreciating one or two things on the second time round that I want to focus on most importantly for this episode, mm-hmm. um, handsome film. Yes. I mean, yeah. for me, I'm going to ask you a question later on, Ben, that I'm going to answer now, but you yeah. may answer later on. What okay. has 2022 in film on this podcast or outside of the podcast meant to me? Right, so you can answer later. For me, there's two things, but one that I want to mention now is the modern black and white film. Mm. Every one that I've seen on the podcast this year, even I didn't like Ramona as much, mm. but it, it was a handsome film. Rosa mm. from Guatemala, nice film. Yeah. January, very handsome film. And I'm sure there's been some, one or two others that I've completely forgotten about. Like Every black and white film that I've seen on this podcast this year, where I've always said, oh, I don't think 98% of all black and white films post-1940 should ever be made in black and white. Well, I am right, <laughs> except for something like January. So that's yeah. why it's in the 2%, because you couldn't have colour in this film, apart from when this film does have colour. We'll come on to that in a bit. But this had to be a black and white film then. Yeah. It's what well, as we're led to believe, it's in the middle of nowhere in Bulgaria with nothing around but snow and forest. Yeah, And the snow adds. It all adds, because the whole point of the plot is that Petr Motorov, well, the tracks that he's left behind that are sworn by, oh, I definitely saw the tracks. We didn't hear him, but I definitely saw the tracks. Well, within like a minute, the tracks are covered up with the snow. Yeah. So it, it means everything. And what snow in, in a colour film never looks the same as it does in a black and white film. Right. So if snow's going to be as important as it is in this movie, then black and white was the correct decision. It just has that wonderful lynchian feel to it inside number nine tells of the unexpected whatever whatever it's just got that feel to it but for me it's too long 
considering mm-hmm. we've just had three films of, in a row of approximately the same length, so between one hour forty-five and one hour fifty. Yeah, literally, this, films this, two, three, four on this list are all one hour forty-five, one hour fifty, yeah. including this one, January, which is also one hour fifty-ish. Yeah, this feels like seventeen thousand hours long to me. It, it, it's it's all the long speeches. Yeah. That's what it is. It's yeah. but not just long speeches, and I think I brought this up last time. The slow yeah. delivery of these speeches. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, so for me, this is a film. For me, this is the most divisive film on the list, and I thought about that. Um, Lucy Sir Pontcheval is extremely divisive, mm-hmm. um, mostly because it's like three different films going on at once, and you could argue about how they're even connected all that well. But I think Francis would make people enjoy that film. Here, I don't know what's the thing that made people enjoy the film. The Crow, maybe? But he's actually not in it as much as I remember him being in it. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, first time round, I I thought he was in every scene, but he isn't. He's in like probably about nine or ten scenes in this extremely long-feeling film. Um, This might feel very different on the big screen. Might, yeah. Might do, but again, I, I'm quite consistent with this. I didn't love it first time round. I just tolerated it as being filmed the month because we had bad ones. Same again. Like for me, I just, it, it's just not for me. Ultimately, yeah. it's not for me. But second time round, I hinted that it was it was like the shining first time round. Holy mm. hell! I didn't I didn't even remember the axe scene. No, no, it's it's unreal, isn't so it? That, that, it? That, that when it, and then the corridor. Well, there's yeah. there's a few corridors. But, but that, that corridor scene as well, that's another moment where black and white is essential. Oh, absolutely. You keep turning out the lights, and then it just it works so much better than it would have if it was colour. Best yeah. bit for me is the beginning and the end. Yes. So yeah. I love the first 20 minutes, and I love the last 20. Unfortunately, there's another hour and 10 in between that just, like, <laughs> turn me off with the slow dialogue and the slow pace and the where is Peter muttered of conversations, which are endless. And yep. the, the joke's quite funny. Maybe the second time round that conversation happens. Yes. But when it's the third, and and, yep. and it's the third thing that's worth talking about because again with the foxes, mm-hmm. um, when it's the second fox that comes back, so a second person that has gone to the woods and has come back as a as a literally frozen fox. Yeah. You're still thinking, hmm, not quite sure what that's about yet, really. Not quite sure what's going on here. When it happens for a third time, as your science teacher probably taught you, Ben, that's science. Yeah. It's It's no longer a coincidence. It's no longer an accident. So when it happens for the fourth and the fifth time in this movie, (laughs) do you get what I'm saying? It's like the effect has worn off. Like, all right, so this, let me guess, this person's going to go out the front door and come back as a frozen fox within like 10 minutes. Lo and behold, they do. Yeah, this is this is where this film is going now. We're just going to keep doing this. Over exactly. Over. So that that for me, it needed to have done something else, and it threatens to with the crow. Yeah, and it threatens to with the color, and it threatens to mm. with the corridors and the axes and the children and the. But for me, that was just. A, for me, this is just the the, the work of uh, Andrei Paunov. Is his name? Something like that, yeah. yeah. He is a Shining fan, and he wanted to put that in because he adores the film. And hey, we all adore the Shining because it, 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 you know it's a masterpiece. We're crying out loud. Uh, the hotel picture on the floor, yes, Shining axe, Shining yep. corridor, Kids. Shining snow, Shining. Uh, what else we got? Um, bartender Lloyd the barman, Lloyd, uh, barman Shining. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. There's, there's probably some more as well. Um, but yeah, I'm not crack around enough to save this film for me, Ben. Fair dues. As much as I love the fact that he literally causes a power outage in the entire place because yeah. he's insistent on using this machine to crack his nuts open. Yeah. 
just loved I'd love that nutcracker. It is a hell of a thing. Yeah. But we have reached the end, Ben. Okay. Actually, no, and we haven't. I want to ask you one question about January, actually. But we can't yeah. ignore the colour thing. I want to talk about the colour a bit more. Um, do you remember the line in the film when one of the characters says to the other, the city is full of music? Yes. And they wear hats yes. to, to, for fashion, not to keep warm. Yes. And they leave the lights on all the time. Yes. And then the, you the, I mean, it's it it probably my favourite moment of the whole film, apart from maybe one of the bits of the beginning at the end and stuff. But yeah. when he comes out of this scene where he's got an axe in his hand and he's in a corridor and then everything's colour all of a sudden. Yeah. Has he somehow landed in the city? It's got that kind of city feel to it. They they, they definitely, they're drawing this line between rural folk who are real and tough and city folk who are soft and feminine and stuff. And yeah, that final colour scene does have a kind of a city feel. Because it's full of music, as they said. (laughs) Uh, everything's neater everything's just kind of like not rural so it's kind of like right so have i missed something where you sort of i don't think so no Um, i think it's i think portaled himself over to the city or something because the the, the barman even says uh again peter motorov where is he but don't don't listen to the people in the city because they don't know what they're talking about yes now if he was in the city he would still say that because like the people in the city are outside that bar yeah, yeah, so yeah, for me, I don't know, but literally, I'm just trying to get my head around that. Has he actually portaled himself by accident or in his own head or via the, do- the, the, the crow or the dog or something <laughs> into think, a city bar? I don't know what's happened. I think we've just got this, like, um, myths and legends are true for us people in in the countryside. We understand them. City city folk don't, maybe. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Indeed, indeed. But, Ben, no, well, we've, we've come no closer to, to finding a result in that. But... No. We do have a result. We do, and it, like you asked an interesting question earlier. What are, from the films that we've watched in twenty twenty two? What do we want cinema to be? And my answer to that is is not January. Um, my answer to that is something smaller, something personal. Um, yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. And we are in complete agreement. <gasps> The film of the year for 22, 2000 plus on the Outside Centre Film Podcast is compartment number six. It was both our number ones. Get away. How was... about those apples? That's unreal. It was it, uh, that it was very difficult to ignore the might of Plan Seventy Five. And guess Plan... what? We both had that as number two as well. No, because <laughs> <laughs> like as much as I want, I want this more kind of fragmentary, handheld, tactile idea of cinema. I could not ignore how good Plan Seventy Five is. It's so good. Um, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, I think we both want the same thing. Yeah, and, yeah. and the results have proven that because we've literally got the same one and two together. Um, with, fit, cinema with feeling. Yes, but then also cinema that isn't afraid to go somewhere different and difficult. I'm thinking of Lucy loses her horse here. Um, I also want some of that as well. I want. I want oh, absolutely! Make- no, I mean for for me, Europa was three, and for you, Lucy yes. was three. Um, yeah. So we, we've both got something else out of it, but we've come together with, without what question are, the one and two films 
That's unreal. That, okay. that do have the most going on, at least wow. in terms of its kind of normality of life and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just relatable things. And it's just like, it, it, I mean, yeah, for me, for me, it's a bit of a shock result. Yeah, me too. Or, also because we'd seen it extremely recently. Um, yeah. And we're both a bit like, yeah, it wasn't really the best thing we've ever seen. But and that's exactly what I was thinking again, watching it. It's, it's not the best film I've ever seen, but there's something really good about it. There really is. It's, it's, it's got a lot going on. It's beguilingly deep. That's what uh, it yeah. is. Just Look very straightforward. Fan- and, and it's actually a film that people can get their hands on. So, yeah. <laughs> for once. But anyway, look, we recommended all these. Even January, we recommended, of course we are. But yeah. congratulations. Uh, and it, it could be argued that a finished film should have won last year. It was a very, very, very competitive race. Yes. Finland has its winner finally on the Outside Centre Fun podcast. Yeah. So, you hold Kostman and you carry on doing exactly what the hell you're doing, young man, because yeah. you are the future of the whole country's cinema. Like, you <laughs> really, really are. Don't know how many films Aki's got left. He's got one next year, as I say, but um, he's, he's mid, mid to late 60s now. He's probably going to cave it all in at some point. So, Hugh Kostman is the future. The, the blind man who didn't want to see Titanic. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, that that was that that was very, very strong contender in 2021. Yeah. Um, just like this one was here, but he's actually gone ahead and actually got the trophy. So that is marvellous stuff. So, Scandinavian winner on the podcast again, Ben. Yeah. It's not over. It's, it's not, not over because now we get to have some fun. <laughs> now, if, without question for me, the most competitive prop list we've ever had and okay. the most competitive sno- uh, smoking scenes we've ever had. This is hella competitive, hella interesting. Don't Uh know how we're going to go. Ben, what are your top three smoking Uh moments of the year with an appendix of why we even do it in the first place? Yeah, okay. So the the smoking... Why do we do this? The smoking... The smoking moment of the month is uh, that's quite a deep question, Theo. It is uh, actually. It's the deepest one asked on this podcast so far. It is. Um, so I think on the one hand, smoking is kind of synonymous with cinema for me. It's kind of like it's a hallmark of the early part of cinema from like 1900 to 1950. It's, it's a big feature of filmmaking at that time filmmaking is about making pictures with light smoke behaves very interestingly in light and so you saw a lot of smoking in the early part of cinema it's kind of died off a bit now smoking is also um an open statement of no to life yes Um, it it can be used by characters in film to say something that you could say with dialogue but it it just does it so much better really and i think that i have chosen three smoking moments that have that kind of duality of smoking in film it it looks great it's a saying no to life it, it says something that you can't necessarily say in other ways it's a vice so, with a purpose Vice with a purpose. So, my number three smoking year. My number three <laughs> from the Russian film Stand by Me. Oh God, that was full of smoking. Goodness me! And it was the, <laughs> the introduction of the mother character with her her thin, deeply thin, brittle oh, cigarette. What a scene! How much more can you learn about this woman than by watching her smoke these ridiculous? They're like it's like a hair. It's so thin. <laughs> 
you learn everything about her just from how she's sitting there and puffing away and being brittle and difficult. No ashtray on the stairs. No, no, no ashtray at all. She doesn't care. You know, it's her house. She'll ash wherever she wants. <laughs> my, my number two smoking moment of the year was um, a kind of a perfect summary of that kind of no to life. It's the smoking in the toilet moment in the, the Kazakhstan film, The Assault. If everyone Lord, that's right. Yes, yes. What what a callback! So it's it's a guy having a cigarette, listening to the horrendous sounds of the assault beginning, and um, it is the the no to life writ large. That's kind of like how it hit me. Yeah, I didn't go, I didn't go back and rewatch the assault. I'm just going working from my notes here, but um, <laughs> but I just I just loved the the kind of comedy and the death duality of that moment because it worked really well and best moment of the assault by far it's a very very problematic movie very but but you know there was what a, a smoking great... moment it's got it's got its badge of honor for that at least my my right. moment of the year goes to a series of smoking scenes from Cyril Shelblin's movie Unrest yeah which I didn't talk about when we first talked about the film so every there are many many smoking scenes in unrest and every single time there is a smoking scene it's like three or four different people and matches are passed around it's never a lighter it's always matches of course a match a match book or matchbox is passed around and something that they never stress in this film is that the person of highest status or the person with the most power in that scene will put the matches in their pocket. It doesn't matter whose matches they are. The, the highest status person puts the matches in their pocket, which, and it happens in every single scene. It was just such a little thing, which I absolutely loved. And I thought, what fun, what fun that they're having this moment where the, the big man will kind of quietly steal the matches and put them in his pocket. And I, I just thought it was a throwaway gag. However, in the last chunk of the movie, you've finally reached a room full of powerful men. So you've got like, uh, the, I think it's the mayor and factory owners and all these rich guys. They've got their cigars out. There's no more, no more cigarettes, no more hand rolls, no, none of the kind of hobo cigarettes that all the kind of working class people are smoking. We, we've now got big fat cigars. Someone asks for a light and one of the characters brings the matchbook, book, uh, matchbook out of his pocket and he starts reading it. And it's got a an anarchist message written on it. And it's the the passing of the matchbook from lower class people to higher class people has been a thing in the film. So that you have this moment with these rich men sitting, smoking their cigars, reading the anarchist manifesto on the back of a, a matchbook. And I just I loved that bit. I loved it. Smoking as a as a thread running through a thread of power running all the way through the film a smokeocracy yes yeah what were your top three no no th- you're you are the king of the smoke oh, my, oh thanks man thanks you thanks. are the you are, I, I bow to your wisdom i love how you, you started that list off small with one yeah. with one one on stairs yeah. then you had a man with an assault going on then you yeah. had a smokeocracy like yeah. that is yeah. the perfect top three smoking yeah. lists so far I've, I've, I've thought about it long and hard um, I'd, I'd like to kind of. There's a lot of great smoking moments. Of course, of course. Okay. No, no doubt you could have put two lots of three together, but um, no, we have to try and be strict on these things. Just yeah. like Ben, we've had a vice with a purpose. Yeah. Now it's prop with a purpose. Yes. 
and I literally could have had about eight here. Like <laughs> it, it, it has been an extraordinary year for props in movies. Yeah, but I do have a top three. Mm-hmm. We shall go through them. Number three, the best third best prop of the year, twenty twenty two, from Chilean film Immersion, Pig Head in a Sack. Oh my god, I forgot about Pig Head in a Sack. So it's a it's a really interesting film. We both we both enjoyed it. Um, yeah. It was my film of the month. It was your number two. Yeah. Um, you said it made your skin skin crawl. It was a skin crawler kind of movie. For tension from the first minute to the last, unease all the way throughout. And it's a film all about social class and mistrust between two very different forms of Chilean people. You've got the the wealthier landowner people versus the fishermen people, basically. And the trust, the distrust rather, mistrust, is just builds and builds and builds and then stays constant for about an hour and a half. Yeah. Until we finally get what we think is going to be the resolution once and for all, where we will find out how evil are these fishermen how do they kill people? What's in that sack? That's What's been in on the bag? bag? What's in the bag that's been on the boat for as long as as long as the film's been going? That very clearly and obviously is human remains because they are fishermen and they are dirty low life scum that kill people. So mm. think the landowners. So thinks the father in this film. When he opens the sack, I did not ever expect it to be a pig's head in there. No, it no. could have been fish guts. It could have been anything else but for the fact it was a pig head mm. and it looked awesome it looked gross like the whole film is gross in one way or another it was just a fantastic prop like i don't know what they could have chosen that would have been better than a pig's head in that sack yeah. so okay. for sheer impact and oh my goodness what a prop number three yeah number two probably the most active prop to a plot line we've ever had, and yet it's still not number one. Mudfish in a bag from Iranian film Until Tomorrow. Yes. Not only yeah. does the lead character of Until Tomorrow, a Iranian woman that has to hide a pregnancy from her parents, yeah. she takes that mudfish everywhere with her. Yeah. Everywhere. She goes to a pet store to ask for a favour Yeah. Um, yeah. from the person that works there. I think either... Money, lodgings, or both. I think yeah. buying uh, the mudfish is a complete. It's a red herring, if you will. What it, what it is, yeah. But he only agrees to help her if he at least pretends to buy. She at least pretends to buy something from the shop. So it's not uh, obvious why she's come to visit him. Yeah. She buys a mudfish and puts it in the bag. Let, l- however, that mudfish in the bag is literally, as I said, goes everywhere with her. On the one, on the one arm, she got the baby. Mm-hmm. Carrying this baby, and the other, she's always got the mudfish in a bag. Why yeah. does that even matter? Because mm. when she's running through the hospital trying to escape from a doctor who's tried to basically molest her, yes, and who's going yeah. to report her to the police, and the police are after this individual, this woman, illegally pregnant, according to Sharia law and all the rest of it. The person she meets in the car park that gets her in an ambulance and drives her out to safety from the clutches of evil, as it were, was the one that she gave the mudfish in a bag to. Or rather, was the father of the son that she gave the mudfish in the bag to. And without that happening, Ben, she would have been caught, she'd have been locked up, she'd have been God knows what. The mudfish in the bag is us. We are with her all the way through this movie. And then it literally saves her life. That's right. It's a mudfishocracy. It's a mudfishocracy. And yet, that's still not the number one prop of the year, Ben. 
Well, <laughs> what can possibly, what can it possibly be? Work? We've mentioned the film already. It's the only good thing going forward, in my opinion. Although this, it, it, this, this theme that it plays with quite well, the eye drops from Japanese film Drive My Car. Oh, yes. If Drive yes. My Car's about anything at all, and we really weren't quite sure what it really was about in the end, and we didn't really love it all that much, I think it was a film by month for gritted teeth for you. Um, yep. What it film does really well, it's not a romantic thing. It doesn't do any of that stuff well. It doesn't really have a decent sense of place. It's far too long, and it's not a great film whatsoever. Forget the Oscar and all that. It really isn't a great film. But how it captures the Japanese man's inability to cry and yeah. inability to show emotion when it really matters, that's what Drive My Car is all about. He yeah. never really declares any sort of relationship with his new driver that he gets and things that happen to this lead character in Drive My Car with his wife that cheats on him. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact that he's dealing with the fact that he, he crashed his car, hence mm-hmm. why he needs a driver, because he's got glaucoma. Mm-hmm. And he only just finds that out. And obviously that normally brings with it a certain sense of doom. Um, so he's got a lot going on. And he goes back to his flat, having heard this news, is about to tell his wife that he's crashed his car and that he's got glaucoma and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. only to find that his wife is literally sleeping with somebody else live in the flat. Yeah. So he's got a lot to deal with. He's utterly exasperated and gutted by the fact that he's found out his wife's cheated on him. He's gutted about the fact that he's crashed his car and needs a driver. So mm-hmm. what does he do? He goes back to his car, puts the engine on. Mm. Then he remembers, shit, I've got a good climb, I've got to take these eye drops now. Tries to squirt an, um, an eye drop in, mm-hmm. misses. Tries the other one, misses. Rolls down his cheeks, symbolizing tears, Damn. symbolizing the entire history of Japanese cinema that's always been about Japanese men being having an inability to showcase emotions as a race, as a human genealogy <laughs> like it, the, all, it like nearly every japanese film i've ever done has got something about not being able to show emotions properly yeah. just like oh. plan 75 has got some of that in as well but yes. more specifically on men this yeah. so what a prop to have it tears simulated by eye drops that were there for the story he needed them for his glaucoma but for the fact he's just been dealt even more bad news and he's not able to cry and he's not able to cry throughout the rest of the movie those eye drops were the eye drops of the eye of the duck of that movie. <laughs> Man. <laughs> what a prop. Yeah. Short film, but what a prop. <laughs> right. That's smoking, that's props done. Parties. Ben, I don't, yeah. I don't think we will. I think, I think I am right. We won't do this next year because I think parties are more normal now and there should be loads more films that have loads more parties from, yeah. from, from now on. But we'll find something for 2023. To we'll, we'll find some more. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So, yeah. Ben, Ben, what yeah. was your favourite party scene of all the films on the podcast in 2022? Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to... I'll, I'll keep this short. Um, my third favourite party scene came from the movie Uni. And uh, suddenly I'm saying Uni. I can't remember which country made it. Was it Indonesia? Yes. Yes. The Indonesian film Uni. Um, it's the club scene with the fun friend, um, the night out at the party. It's just like it just lifted the film for me um, enormously. Uh, Colour, sound, burst... Uh, riding around on a motorbike. It was just a real kick in the arm for that film. 
my second favourite party scene, because we defined this moment as a party scene when we talked about this film, is the mushroom scene from The Worst Person in the World, because it was just really, really fun in a film that I wasn't having a lot of No, you, did, you certainly did not like it at all. No, but, but I really enjoyed the mushroom scene. My number one party scene, I couldn't choose... I've gone with a tie. I've got two films tied for first place. One of them is Neon Lights. Um, and I've gone with the concrete rave scene, which is the opening rave scene. It's the, the one where they're looking for matches all the time. Although it could have been what I called the ketamine party scene. Actually, it was cocaine. Did not realize. But then my other um, tie for first is Lake Falcon. It's the... Bloody uh, hell. That was... Right? Right, the best bit of the film, <laughs> the, the mask break dancing scene in the film. It's so good. It's such a pumping, exciting scene, and it does so much for that character and for the film as a whole as well. I just, yeah, loved it. Have we got any crossover? Have you got any of those in your top three? No. What you got? What you got? Well, I haven't got a top three. I just did one because mm-hmm. basically I I had the I earmarked this as a potential winner, and I, what I was going to do throughout the year was can anything beat this scene, and nothing yeah. could. Okay. From the worst person in the world, Ben. Yes, the light bulb party scene. The light bulb is that the where they meet? That that's where the families get together. Uh, yeah. One of the wives gets lifted onto the shoulders, yeah. dancing around to music, and she literally yeah. hits her head on the light bulb, and it smashes. <laughs> Yes, I remember now. That yes. scene is yeah. a hell of a thing, first of all. Secondly, yeah. it's the downfall of everything. Yeah. <laughs> that, and thirdly, it's Scandinavian awkward middle-classness again. Yeah. Like, as soon as p- middle-class people in Scandinavia start having fun, something goes wrong. Like, always. it's, it's always. Just, always. It, it, like, almost, the only other thing that's a guarantee in a Scandinavian film of any country, not just Norway, Sweden, Denmark, whatever, all of them, yeah. is arguments at a dinner table. Like that's yes. when the worst news will come out. Always, yes. the only other thing like that is, as I've said, awkward middle classness in Scandinavian films. Like it, it's, yeah. Why? I mean, they would never dream of having a woman on top of someone's shoulders at a party because that's not what middle class people do. And no. this is why, because when you do it, you end up hitting your head on your light bulb, and it ends up exploding the light. Yeah, yeah. So it's all broken now. It's all broken, and all their lives just went fairly miserable after that really, really the lights went out on their fun and then it became very very serious <laughs> that was my party scene ben that was 2022 on the outside film podcast how about that i can't believe it's a whole year that's just unreal I've so, like... let me ask you that question then i've said for me film 2022 outside center film podcast 2022 black and white films and yeah. that we saw so many beautiful ones and nearly all of them worked, even if I didn't love them all equally. Yeah. Um, I had my mind blown with it. What yeah. was your memory from 2022 Outside Centre Film podcast films or outside the podcast films in general? My my take home is probably what it always is, which is about something which is kind of outside my comfort zone. Um, one of the things I really love about doing this show is that I, I watch films I would never watch normally. Um, I'm introduced to so many, so many different kind of flavors and experiences, so many different windows into things. Um, and I, I love going in as blind as possible so that I have no idea what's going to happen. Sometimes bites me on the bum, but 
Um, more often than not, it's it's an absolute treat. Um, and I, ju- I, ju- I, I would recommend that to more people. Just take a chance. Watch something you don't normally want to watch because you, you have no idea what's out there for you. And that, that's one of the great things about this. And I'll, I'll carry that on into next year. Yeah, I mean, anyone anyone listening to us, of course, is going to listen to our Films of the Month, Films of the Year. Oh, but yeah. actually, more so than ever, Ben, especially this year, yeah. check out the ones that didn't make it. Yeah, absolutely. Because we absolutely. both have films that we absolutely loved that didn't make this list. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, God, in a big way, yeah. And one of mine's a, one of mine's a black and white one, The Cloud and the Man. So it, it, it's just... One of, mine's, one of mine's a period drama. What it, the hell? Indeed. Like, honestly, like... It, because and also, but hey, it's it's very easy to find out. Hey, that person said that film was great. Let's watch the film. But when mm. people say a film's rubbish, mm. that's when you've got to check the film and go, really? Let's have a look at this. It's like, yeah, yeah you've heard us moan, you've heard us rant, you've heard us cry, you've heard us whatever. Check those films out too if you've got the time, because you'll you'll you, maybe you'll pick some up that neither of us picked up, and you'll come away thinking, well, actually, this is the great film, and this is why. So, yeah. as always, a final message. Thank you to yourself, Ben. Oh, pleasure. And I was about to say see you next year, but I'll see you in a month, <laughs> literally, because yes. we no yes. longer have a break in this bleeding thing. We just carry on. But thank you for your service. Yeah. And uh, yes, I shall see you literally in a few weeks. But of course, the listener, dear listener, um, numbers have increased all over the world, actually. Um, some countries surprised me with, with how much they listen to us. Um, places like Finland that have stayed at a high level. Hey, you've got a winner this year, Finland. <laughs> yes. So uh, we're, we're, pleased to, we're pleased to serve you, but, but of course everybody, everybody that's tuned in to us over the last 12 months, and you'll be glad to know that we'll be back very soon, so there's no rest for the wicked and no rest for foreign film, uh, film critics, because Ben, January 2023, yep. four or five films that the yep. Oscars have deemed not worthy of the semi-final stage, here yep. we go again. Back, back, back. Back, <laughs> back, back, and uh, hey... Who the hell knows what's going to happen with this Oscar race? Haven't got a clue. All the big names have made films in 2022. Mm. I don't see too many big ones making names, making films in 2023 uh, release. So, no. um, or, or for that window that it's open. So I have no idea what's going to do what. But we will find out, of course, when you tune in to us in literally a few weeks. So happy new year to all of you. And we'll see you on the other side.